This season is such a different, difficult season. And, and this verse came to mind in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's writing his last letter. And he says this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, according to my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not chained. And so our, our joy is that the scripture is not chained, that in this COVID season and this difficult season, that the word of God goes out with power. So may God bless now by your spirit the preaching of the word. So question, what gets you up in the morning? What puts a spring in your step and keeps you going? And there's a statement, it's over 100 years old, that says, a long obedience in the same direction. So for those who are believers, especially, what gives you a long obedience in the same direction? What gets you going? What pushes you on? What compels you? in difficult seasons. There's a man named Viktor Frankl who was a psychiatrist in Austria, a very young man, his wife was 23, his brand new wife, and he was apprehended and arrested for being a Jew in 1942 by the Nazis. He and his wife and his brother and his mother were all taken to concentration camps. He was in Auschwitz and Dachau and uh, his wife died, his brother died, and his mother died. And in the aftermath of this horrific experience, he wrote a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And by the way, the Library of Congress, in conjunction with the Book of the Month Club, did a survey of thousands of Americans and a few years ago and said the 10 most Impactful books in America in the last hundred years included this book as well as The Lord of the Rings and To Kill a Mockingbird and Gone with the Wind. But anyway, and the Bible was number one, by the way. But anyway, he wrote this book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And he had a famous line in the book. It's a wonderful book. It should be read. And it goes like this. It said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Or if you have a reason for living, you can put up with almost anything. And Viktor Frankl lived a life of dignity. He died in 1997. When he died, his book had been published 10,000 times in 42 languages. So Viktor Frankl, a man of nobility and dignity. Significance. How do you arrive at significance? On the other end of the scale, there's a play by a guy named Shakespeare, and the play is Macbeth. And the story goes that Macbeth has killed the rightful king, and he and his wife, who are evil, have murdered other people, and his wife, in Act 5, loses her mind, commits suicide, and Macbeth, grieving the death of his wife, and seeing all the blood on his hands and the imposing army that's about to conquer him and put him to death makes a very famous statement about man. He says, he says man, he says, is nothing more but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. 
man is a, just a, a poor player that struts and fed, frets his way across the stage. His life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, really prefiguring four centuries later, men like Jean-Paul Sartre who said that man is nothing more than an empty, useless passion. So the question is, what, what gives you significance? I, I would just say that as much as I admire Viktor Frankl, if you were to ask him, psychiatrists who fathered something called logotherapy, if you were to ask him, why does man have dignity and significance? Why live, he said he discovered the importance of humor in prison, concentration camp, the importance of forgiveness, the importance of love. Why forgive instead of trying to get even? Why, why be gracious instead of being vindictive? He would say, because you just should be. Why does man have significance? Well, you just do. What's the basis for it? And I would just say that as brilliant as Viktor Frankl was, he said, well, you just have a basis for dignity. But I would say that really, if you have no basis for dignity other than what you think, you can end up at where Macbeth is, or you can thankfully become a noble pagan and be like Viktor Frankl. But I want to say to us as Christ disciples, or those who are considering becoming a disciple of Jesus, we have dignity and we have significance because we're made in the image of God. And if you're a believer, because God has called you into fellowship, he has forgiven you your sins by the blood of the cross, he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit, you have significance. Psalm 8, I was reading through Psalm 8 a couple weeks ago, and in Psalm 8, the psalmist, uh, the psalm attributed to David, starts off by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse three, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. He says, Lord, David says, I've stood under the Judean night sky and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of stars. and And I have seen the vast echoing of the deserts. I've seen the mountains and I've seen the seas and it is, the creation is amazing. It's incredible. It's, it's uncomprehendable in its vastness. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I thought about a story that I'd read years ago about one of my favorite presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, who was in the White House. He had a well-known naturalist come and visit him and they went out in the night sky and they took out a telescope and this is what happened. So the Roosevelt said that that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. And it is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It, it is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each one larger than our sun. And it says that Colonel Roosevelt grinned and said, now I think we are small enough, let us go to bed. Now, when you consider the vast universe, but then David says, consider the vast universe, and then this is what he says. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, for you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, physically lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have put, given him dominion over The works of your hands, you've put all things under his feet, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, 
Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So, so the psalmist says, I consider the universe in its vastness. And I just say, Lord, it blows my mind that you're mindful of man. The man is made in the image of God. It blows my mind that there, there is a reason and a basis for significance. And that's why a man named C.S. Lewis gave an address entitled The Weight of Glory in the Midst of World War II in England. And, and he talked about the dignity of man. And he says, there's no such thing as a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. All men and women and boys and girls have an eternal significance. So that's why it makes a difference in how we play our sports or how we do politics or how we communicate with each other because all men and women have an eternal significance. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. He goes on and he says, if you could see the people you talk to and their eventual standing before God, you'd be tempted at times to worship some people. And when you saw the evil that some people have, you would be recoiled in terror. No mere mortals. Behold the dignity of man. So I, I want to go to Luke 19 and lay the groundwork for more application next week. And this parable, the last parable in Luke before Jesus goes to the cross. And I'm going to talk about the significance and the dignity of man and how this should fill us with joyful sobriety as disciples of Christ. But you know, this, the background is Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He's very wealthy and Jesus is going through Jericho toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. And he stops under a sycamore tree because Zacchaeus being short, had climbed up in the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. And they go to the house, and Christ receives Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus repents of his sins. And I think Jesus, with great joy in his heart, says, salvation has come to this house. It's an incredible story. But even as he's sitting there in that vicinity, he tells this parable. Again, groundwork today, application next week. Verse 11, as they heard these things, story of Zacchaeus, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of heaven was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return and calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas or a portion of money and said to them, engage in business until I come. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those, these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So in this passage, three reasons for significance. Number one, he told them these things as he proceeded and because he was going to Jerusalem or because he was near to Jerusalem. In other words, Christ told them that's because he was walking under the shadow of the cross. You're significant if you're a believer in Jesus because the Lord God, the eternal God, whose name is Jesus, became a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for your sins. He's marching under the shadow of the cross. In chapter 18, he turns to the 12, and he said to them in verse 
31. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, Jesus, by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It's amazing. They didn't get it. But Jesus says, I'm marching under the shadow of the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'll be beaten. I'll be spit upon. I'll be mocked. I'll be cruelly crucified, and I'll rise again. And I'll ascend to heaven, and I'll pour out the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to have significance, you walk under the reality of the forgiveness of sin by the blood of Christ shed on the cross for your sins. And I think about, I think about this story being told in the home of Zacchaeus. And I think about Zacchaeus 2 and 3 and 5 and 10 and 15 years down the road and how Zacchaeus may have stayed in Jericho and how he would have been an honest tax collector and not a nefarious thief of his people and, and how he represented Jesus to his contemporaries. And I can see Zacchaeus walking through Jericho and walking down the path where Jesus walked, stopping at that sycamore tree with a contemporary or thinking to himself, I was perched in that tree with a bunch of kids. And Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead, looked at me and with love in his eyes and kindness in his voice said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus, he called me by name. He knew me. He loved me. He changed me. We have a staff devotion. We have staff worship once a month, all of us. And we heard just a few weeks ago the importance of, of, of regularly reviewing and recalling how you came to know Jesus as your Savior, or how you made a key turning point in your life. Where were you? Where were you when you really understood the gospel? When, you, when, you, when that reality became part of the fabric of, of your soul, the, the central reference point. See, if I am... If I'm going to have significance, I must have a reference point, and the reference point is the reality of Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. All of history's focal point is there. You see, not only are you made in the image of God, every boy and girl and man and woman, made in the image of God, therefore they're worthy of respect and Christian love. But if you are a believer in Jesus, you're also saved, called to him, sealed with the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit, and when you die, you go to heaven. Therefore, that is the reference point. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that God gave us the church and the teachings of the church and the people who were teaching the, so that we'll no longer be unrooted people blown here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine and by the cunning craftiness of men. He says, that, he says, instead we're to be built up in love. And he says, verse 17, now, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That word futility is used three times in the New Testament. And it means purposelessness. It means a vacuity. It means there's no rootedness. They just go here and there, here and there. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no rootedness. And I say to you that if, if we're going to have dignity, we are rooted in the reality of Christ. And we find our reference point there. 
And so Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then later in the passage, he says, verse 26, I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He says, when I'm lifted up on the cross, you'll get it. And then he says these words, incredible words. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And later says, if the son of God sets you free, you are free indeed. My, 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 my reference point is Jesus. My reference point is his authority in my life. I've been praying for some people that I really care for who are dealing with issues and Asking the Lord, God, please release them from these. And I keep on going back to an old hymn by a guy named Charles, Charles Wesley that says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Man, I want that. See, our sin is canceled. It's done. But he says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. The substance abuse, the, the, the lust, the arrogance, the pride, the sloth, whatever. He, he, set, he breaks the power of canceled sin. How does God break the power of, the, of canceled sin? How does he break the power? By, by, the authority, by the authority of the scripture as the Holy Spirit makes application to our lives. You should know the truth. The truth shall set you free as you abide in my word, as you see me as the light of the world. So, so, so significance is found in understanding Jesus is marching under the shadow of the cross and what to accomplish for us. Secondly, it's, it's found in the reality of, of, of the kingdom. It says that he said this parable to those who, who supposed that the kingdom of heaven was to appear immediately. Uh, these disciples had walked in for three years and they still didn't get it. In fact, if you go to accompanying passage in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says the same thing I just read a few minutes ago out of Luke 18. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, spat upon, flogged, beaten, crucified, buried, risen from the dead. He said that in Luke 10, Mark 10. And, and then the very next statement, James and John come to him and say, Lord, we want to be on the inner circle of the inner circle when you bring your kingdom a political kingdom of power and might and armies and swords and, and horses and battalions. We want to be on the inner circle of the inner circle. One guy want to be the secretary of defense or secretary of state or secretary of the treasury or, or whatever, but we want to be on the inner circle of the inner circle. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. Can you really share in the passion I'm about to go through? You see, the, the people were looking for a political kingdom of might and power to overthrow the Roman yoke, to bring in an old golden era of, of, of nationalism and rule, and that's what they were looking for. And Jesus says, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom is one of servanthood and love and forgiveness and mercy and care. My kingdom is centered upon the reality of all that I have done 
I was thinking about this and I read Mark 15 even this weekend. It's the passion narrative of Jesus standing before Pilate. And uh, he's been delivered over to Pilate who represents the Roman authority. Pilate has the ability to dismiss the charges against Jesus. And it says this, verse 2, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked them, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. That's it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, all of which Pilate knew were trumped up nothingness. He realized it was all a charade. That's just ridiculous. So Pilate, again, asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Amazed, which means thunderstruck. Filled with admiration. That's what the word means. Pilate, who represented earthly authority and unlimited might in their minds, and the monolithic only power of that world at that time, who had the authority to kill or release, condemn or free, was amazed at Jesus. Amazed, thunderstruck, bowled over, filled with admiration. Didn't realize that Jesus is fulfilling the promise in the Old Testament book of Isaiah 53 that says that the Messiah will be silent before his accusers. The kingdom. The kingdom. If you want to have significance, realize that you're part of a kingdom that is something that is bigger than yourself, your party, your neighborhood, your nation. You're part of a worldwide movement that arrests the attention of men and women by the power of the gospel of grace. Heidelberg Catechism, we quoted earlier here, question 123 is one of the top five catechism questions in my mind. It says, what do we mean when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done? And the answer is, when we pray that, we pray, Lord, may we submit more and more to you by your word and by your spirit. May, may we see your church preserved and increased, and may we destroy the works of the devil and every accusation raised against you until you become our all in all. That does it for me. The kingdom of God. What, what do, when we pray thy kingdom come, what do we pray? We pray that, that we would submit ourselves more and more to your word by the power of the word and the spirit, that, that we would see your church preserved and increase, and that we might see the works of the devil thrown down and defeated. If I'm to have significance, I must realize that the kingdom of God is here. There, is, there are two major dates in history, and that is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the second coming of the Lord. And right now, we live not in an endless cycle of nothingness. We live in a linear outworking of the plans of God, that who is sovereign and king, and I can trust him. And I'm part of something that's bigger than me, and my family, and my geographical area. I'm part of the kingdom of God. That gives me incredible significance. Or as Martin Luther said in his hymn, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You have significance. 
The third reason you have significance is as this parable begins to unfold, is the clear teaching about the fact that all people who name the name of Christ are gifted. When you came to Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given you gifts for the building up of the body of Christ to represent him in your culture. All people are called to be witnesses. All people are gifted. All people are to give an account to the Lord. And that's why when I talk about this passage, I think about it should fill us with joyful sobriety. It's joyful because I'm not just a cog in a machine. I'm not useless, empty, passionless gas. I'm somebody who has significance because I am made in the image of God, because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. The cross is my reference point. The forgiveness of sins, my reference point. I have, I have significance because I'm part of something that's bigger than me. It's called the kingdom of God, and it's wonderful, and it's gracious, and it's full of mercy and tenderness. And, and, and I am significant because I have, you have received from the living God gifts to be exercised to bless other people and to extend that kingdom. So I, this passage says that I will one day be accountable to the Lord for the way I've lived my life. Therefore, I should have joyful sobriety, joyful seriousness. Life isn't just one big round and round and round we go and we click off one month to the next and one year to the next. Life has purpose and dignity. And then when I was thinking about that, do you think about Hebrews chapter four, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of people that are kind of vacillating in their faith. And so the writer of Hebrews says in verse 11 of chapter 4, let us strive to enter the rest of the Lord. It says, don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't become half-hearted. Don't pull back in the midst of persecution or social distancing. But just strive. And then he says this incredible statement in verse 12, the Word of God is, is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it pierces to the vision of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's a powerful statement. But then verse 13, he says this, nothing in all creation will be hidden from the eyes of the Lord, but everything will be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And, and, and quite honestly, you're filled with, I am, I'm filled with horror over that. Because I'm thinking, oh, my soul, i got to give an account. But that's why I love reading the Bible in context, because the very next breath talks about the tenderness of the triune God who receives us. It's not giving an account to an astute master sergeant who's going to browbeat you. It is given an account to your loving Heavenly Father and to the glorious Savior and the power of the Spirit. Listen, the very next breath. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Just stop. Don't ever get over the absolute incredible thought, God became a man. <laughs> God, God, the, the one who made the heavens and the earth, spoke them into being, 
became a man. It's just, it's, just, it's amazing. And, and he endured all things. He's walked the same paths we walked, yet without sin. Amazing. And he says this. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. <laughs> How glorious is that? How comforting is that? A call to accountability before the great high priest who loves me and invites me to his embrace. But it is, it's, it's, it's a joyful sobriety. John Calvin said this. He said that the kingdom of God, the task of the church, is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible by the way we live, by the way we treat each other, by the way we respond, by our gentleness, by our compassion, by our courage, by our firmness, by who we are. We are to make the invisible kingdom visible by representing Jesus in our work, in our play, in our neighborhoods, in our campuses, wherever we are. That's what we're to do. There's a the book of Philippians is written by Paul to a really wonderful group of people. In fact, the church of Philippi was a wonderful church. Corinthians is written to a group of people that were involved in doctrinal weirdness. Galatians is written to people that were deserting the gospel. Colossians were written to a group of people that were falling prey to this, a weird syncretistic teaching that was popular in their era. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written to people who vacillating. Some books like Thessalonians and Philippians are written to churches that are just happy places to be. Now, Philippians had their issues, but nothing horrendously that they had to, to deal with. So he writes to this group of people and he says, I want you to know I am convinced of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. I look at your lives and I'm just convinced that you belong to him and he'll guard you until the end. And he says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my defense of the gospel and in my imprisonment in the gospel, you are partakers of God's grace with me. So this is a, a group of people that, had, that, they were, that were strong and vibrant and had participated in the, the, the imprisonment of Paul and defending the gospel with Paul. But he prays this. Here's his prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more and more and more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent and may be found blameless at the coming of Jesus. Paul says, yeah, don't, 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 don't quit. Don't, 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 don't just keep pressing. You're called to account. So, so may your love that, that you have may grow more and more and more and more and more so that you can have real knowledge and real discernment and may be found to be pure and blameless at the day of Jesus that comes to you through the fruit of righteousness because you belong to him. And that, that's what we should pray for each other. Go, go, for, go forward in joyful sobriety. You're significant. You're not a useless passion. You're not just a cog in a machine. You're not just uh, another number at a celestial back, Baskin Robbins pick a number. You're significant. Because you walk under the shadow of the cross and the forgiveness of sins, because you're part of something bigger than yourself, and because you've been gifted and called to stewardship of your time and talents, and you live a joyful sobriety. Well, let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for today and for the mercy of, of Christ.
Uh, Lord, we live in a culture that uh, tells us that we are significant because of accomplishments or because of attractiveness or because of financial uh, advantages. Or even some people say our significance is found in movements or zip codes or ethnicity. Well, Lord, we know that we are significant because we and every person on the face of the earth is made in the image of God. And as the people of the cross, we know that our significance is heightened because we have been forgiven by the blood of the cross, by the forgiveness of sin, by the Savior who bled for us in our place. We know we are significant because we're something, part of something that's bigger than ourselves, called the kingdom. We know we are significant because you give to every disciple of Jesus gifts and abilities that are to be used in the common good for brothers and sisters. Even as we dedicated this little boy this morning, we were part of something much bigger than ourselves. So to that end, Lord, we pray that you would teach us and motivate us and move us as we live before you. In Jesus' name. Amen.